as we have journeyed with Jesus closer and closer to the cross over these last couple of weeks of Lent, today finds Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. Today finds us with Jesus as he enters this last week before his betrayal and his trial and his crucifixion. And you have to know that as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a powder keg that is ready to explode. Last week, we talked about this extravagant worship of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who is so moved that Jesus has brought her brother back from the dead, that she is so moved by this reversal of death that she anoints the feet of Jesus in this extraordinary act of devotion. She anoints the feet of Jesus with this perfume that would cost $30,000 in today's money. And when people hear that Jesus is at Mary and Lazarus and their, their sister Martha's house, our scriptures for today open with flocking, with people flocking to see Jesus and to see Lazarus as well, who's back from the dead. And despite the see something, say something kind of order that, that the religious leaders put out before Jesus turns up at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house, this order to report Jesus immediately so that the religious leaders can grab Jesus. Despite all of that, the book of Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 26, verses four and five, that, that the religious leaders are, are wanting to capture Jesus secretly because they're afraid that the people might riot. They even seem to resign themselves to grabbing Jesus after the Passover, once it's all said and done, because of this danger of a riot. Until Judas shows up and says that he can, he can deliver Jesus quietly, the religious leaders that are plotting the death of Jesus are almost willing to bide their time because they know that Jerusalem during the, the Passover is a powder keg. And so because of this, this is why Jesus can enter the city of Jerusalem openly even with the religious leaders wanting Jesus dead. This scene painted by, by Evans Yegan captures the, the scene in our scriptures well. Jews from, from all over are flooding into the, the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This, this remembrance, this celebration of how God had delivered his people during the Exodus. This yearly celebration of how God had delivered his people from oppression and from slavery. So it's estimated that the size of Jerusalem would actually expand about fivefold during the Passover. And the estimates range from several hundred thousand people to several million people, right? Any way you slice it, a lot of people in and around the city of Jerusalem during the Passover. And so this city is full of people celebrating God's deliverance from oppression. And since in our story, the, the Jewish people during this time are, are under the oppression of the Romans, it's super easy to see how, how a celebration of freedom could easily turn into a fight for freedom. How a riot could easily turn into a revolution. And because of, of the potential for violence, it's one of the reasons that Pontius Pilate is in the city. 
So, so Pilate is this career politician with all the wonderful personality traits of a career politician today that we all know and love. Pilate is, is in town, and, and as a career politician, he has to keep unrest in check. His job depends on it. Normally, Pilate's home is out on the coast, but he would come into Jerusalem with his soldiers whenever there was a danger of political unrest. And this, the Passover, is such a time. Some scholars would say that when Pilate wasn't in town, the the de facto rule of Jerusalem fell to Caiaphas, the high priest. At this point in history, the religious rulers of of Israel had had developed a working relationship with their Roman oppressors. Some people would even say a comfortable relationship with these Romans. And that did not go unnoticed by the masses who were not in favor of any kind of collaboration with the Romans. And so, so, so both the Romans and the Jewish ruling religious elite have a lot to gain by by keeping by propping up the existing structure of governance governance for maintaining stability for maintaining the status quo and preventing anything that would jeopardize that and so as we come into this passover the, the people are beginning to connect the dots and wondering if perhaps this jesus might be the messiah their long-awaited anointed king. After all, he's just brought Lazarus back from the dead, and a guy with that kind of power, it's quite possible that he's, he's got the power to free this Jewish nation from their Roman oppressors. Have you ever watched a presidential inauguration? Maybe you've been to one. But after the ceremony, after the speeches, there's this motorcade through the streets of D.C. and people wave these little American flags. Well, the palm branch is exactly like those little flags. It was seen as a symbol of the Jewish nation. And the words, and we saw these in our scripture, praise God, blessings to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. The people have to be thinking that their moment is now. Here is someone who can step up, someone who can be their political leader, someone who can be their military leader, someone who can push out the Romans. It's exactly what these people are thinking. But this king, this king is not arriving on a war horse. He's a humble king arriving on a donkey. In the Middle East, a military king, a political king, the kind of king that that this crowd hoped that Jesus was, a conquering king would often arrive into a conquered city on a war horse at at the front of a military procession to show his military power. But when that same king would enter into his own city, coming to bring peace, not war, the custom was that he would often ride into his capital city on a donkey. And the prophet Zechariah called this, described this very scene when he prophesied this day some 500 years beforehand. He wrote, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. 
right? This humble king isn't coming to bring violence. He's, he's coming into the city to be the victim of violence. This king is, isn't arriving to fight the powers of Rome. He's arriving to fight the powers of sin and death. This king is arriving to find that in just a few short days, he would be rejected by these very same people. This king is arriving to give his life. This king is arriving to die. But in dying, this king would achieve forgiveness. In dying, this king would achieve victory for his people. In dying, this king would achieve life for his people. It's interesting that Caiaphas, the high priest, the ringleader of this ruling religious class of leaders, Caiaphas, who who so prominently figures in the scheming and the plotting and in the direct action that, that leads to Jesus' death, Caiaphas says the very same thing in John chapter 11 where there's this conversation amongst the religious leaders that if they don't stop Jesus, soon everyone will believe in him. Caiaphas says this. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. And so so even Caiaphas calls out, even though he doesn't realize the truth in what he was saying, that Jesus would die for his people. That one would die for many, that new life be available not only to the nation of Israel, but new life available to people like you and I. Here's how Jesus himself says it in John chapter 12. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man. This name that Jesus uses for himself that speaks to his real identity as God. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And so King Jesus, as prophesied by the prophets hundreds of years before it happened, as prophesied by Caiaphas, As foretold by Jesus himself, King Jesus is coming to die. During the Passover, when thousands upon thousands of lambs were slaughtered to remember God's rescue of his people during the Exodus, King Jesus comes to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you you talk to people about Jesus, Oftentimes, it is no problem for them to acknowledge that Jesus was an inspiring figure. To acknowledge that Jesus had some some pretty good life lessons around, around morality to pass on. That he was a holy man even. But go beyond that to say that he is God and that's where the pushback starts. But, but given the events of this last week's 
or this last week of the life of Jesus, given the events of Jesus' life, you can't, if you are being intellectually honest, you can't simply dismiss Jesus like that. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said that, that, that sort of, the man who said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. I'm struck by that line in that quote, you must make your choice. And so if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your savior for the forgiveness of your sins, You have not entered into a real relationship with Jesus. I invite you to look at, to examine closely these events of the last week of Jesus. The brutality that's visited upon Jesus, the way that he responds with love and forgiveness. The way that Jesus gives his life. This king who rides into this city to die. This king who refuses to stay dead dead and conquer sin and death and now offers you forgiveness and life who is he to you you must make your choice and if you're here this morning and you do know jesus as your savior for the forgiveness of your sins you have entered into a relationship with jesus same thing i invite you to look look closely at the events of holy week the brutality that's visited upon Jesus, the way that he responds with love and forgiveness, the way that, that he gives his life, this king who rides into this city to die, this king who refuses to stay dead and conquer sin and death and now, now offers you forgiveness and life, a kind of life that is more and more realized as you submit to this king as you yield your life to this king, as you allow this king to more and more reign and rule over your life because it is the only way to find true freedom in this life. Are you embracing more and more Jesus as king or is he an add-on accessory? Who is he to you? You must make your choice. We're going to end our conversation this morning by by reading the events that that take place in these last hours leading up to the cross. This comes from Luke 22 and 23. And, And if you'd like, as these words are read, feel free to close your eyes. 
and actually picture these events, the story, these details in your mind. The same Jesus who came into the city of Jerusalem to have these people turn on him, to crucify him, and it had to be this way for the forgiveness and the freedom that's offered to you. The same Jesus who came into the city of Jerusalem is now coming to you. Will you recognize him as your king? You must make your choice. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. He walked away about a, mile, about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last, he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers, but Peter denied it. Woman, He said, I don't even know him. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. 
They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us. Who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man had been, has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Now that Jesus is back with Pilate, Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. They kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die, as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. As they led Jesus away... A man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one at his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, 
and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. <laughs> 